Welcome to the Sober Nation FM podcast, where we're putting recovery on the map. I'm your host, Jonathan Sylvester. This show is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Do you want to take your recovery to the next level? Do you want more support, community, and fellowship? Sobriety Engine is an incredible free online community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. You can get a ton of great tips, resources, and guidance to help you succeed in recovery and in life. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. Sober Nation FM is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle all while supporting your sobriety, then you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at rcvrhealth.com. And whether you're listening to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or watching on YouTube, please share this with your friends, follow, subscribe, and leave a review. Nation, let's hop right into today's episode. Today, I'll be speaking with author Maggie King. Thanks for coming on the show, Maggie. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I want to hear more about your book, pre-game. But first, I'd like to start off by hearing about what your life was like before finding sobriety. So where does your relationship with addiction actually start? So my relationship with addiction starts probably when I was like 12 or 13. um, When I, you know, started to notice like members of my family who would, you know, drink alcohol and get a little bit messy, you know, and, and, and I, and I started to think like, you know, maybe, maybe the whole drugs and alcohol thing is not for me. Like I had friends that were starting to kind of experiment, but I just didn't want to, you know, be like the members of my family that I, you know, I'd been observing. And so for a while I was kind of like a prude about it and was like, no, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to do any of that. Um, And, you know, basically a large part of why I broke from that um, mindset was because I really wanted to fit in. I wanted to be like all the other girls who could go to parties and drink and, you know, meet boys and things like that. But I was a closeted queer kid when I was 12, 13, 14. So, you know, knowing that I was gay and knowing that I was going to have to, you know, fit in and like have some sort of boyfriend or something, I was like, I'll have a drink so that I can talk to this guy. Sure. Like I'll try it. Let me loosen up. Mm -hmm. So that was like a big factor my, you know, closeted sexuality in starting to drink. So when I was 16, I had my first drink. I don't remember what it was or where it was, but I know that I'd grown up having a lot of anxiety um, and feeling, you know, not enough. And, and really, you know, I went to a very high achieving school. And so I had a lot of pressure that I put on myself and, you know, alcohol just completely had all of those thoughts, like just out the window, alcohol, the second that it got into my lips, like I was fine. And I hadn't ever just felt like, okay, like in my own skin before. So when I had that feeling with alcohol, like I wanted it all the time. And from the jump, like I was a blackout drinker, like 16 years old, not even a hundred pounds. I'm five, two, I'm taking antidepressants and I'm drinking a fifth of vodka every time that I go drinking. And, um, I knew that it was abnormal. You know, my friends didn't like hanging out with me because they'd always have to drag me home, call my parents to pick me up. I was a blackout, passed out drinker. Um, and you know, that continued throughout high school. I, I, I also, you know, became somewhat of a stoner in high school. I had, you know, a boyfriend at the time who, you know, him and his friends that I hung out with, like that was their thing. And so I picked it up and I really was like the kid that would work really hard and had, had the good like resume and like face on the outside. But then like on the weekend, I'm trash in someone's basement and like, I'm the only girl there and you know, everyone is just like, what are we going to do with the girl that's passed out on the floor? Mm. Um, so, 
you know, I got away with a lot of stuff during those first couple of years. Yeah. Um, you know, my parents tried to ground me and I always kind of got out of it. Yeah. Um, so I didn't have a lot of consequences like they talk about in mm -hmm. recovery. Mm -hmm. Um, but really I think where my addiction like took a real turn into like that daily drinking that, you know, that compulsive behavior, right. um, was when I got to college, I had graduated high school. I was recruited to play field hockey at a liberal arts college in Massachusetts, Wellesley college. And, um, I'd stopped smoking weed because I was like, they're going to drug test me when I get to this field hockey team, but they didn't cause it's D3, but either way I like it quit smoking. And I basically got to college and was like, I'm just going to binge drink on the weekends, go down to the frats. And like, I would be the chick that had the bottle, like the plastic water bottle that looked like it was full of water, but it was just vodka Yeah. Like, on the way there pre-gaming on like the way to the frat. And then I got in there and I had another water bottle. So I didn't have to like buy drinks at the frat. And like, it was a whole process. Um, and I think you probably can relate to that like addict math where it's like, okay, if I pregame with this amount of drinks, I'll be right, like right where I need to be when I For get sure. there. Yeah. And then once I get there, like I'm already set. Well, my um, problem was I always sucked at math. So I just didn't yeah. even do any math. It was just like, I'm having this and then I'll have that. And then whatever happens is kind of where I end up. <laughs> at one point I tried doing like the Sharpie thing on your wrist, like trying oh, to catch yeah. drinks yeah. and I would always... I would always lose track at 10. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. like I would get to 10 and be like, this isn't normal. I might as well yeah. just spend the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, like I got to college. I was really doing that like weekend warrior thing. Um, and, you know, I had had an experience my summer before I got to college where I was sexually assaulted by two childhood friends. Mm -hmm. And I know that this is a very common narrative for women in recovery. And mm -hmm. so this is why I talk about it so that other women in the program or in recovery know that, you know, they're not alone. Um, and you know, trauma is like PTSD is a crazy thing in that it just like kind of blocks you off from your memories sometimes. And so when I got to college, it was like in my subconscious, I, I, I obviously like recognized when it happened, right. When it happened, but then I kind of just was like, I'm about to go like start my whole new life in college. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to put that in my subconscious. Maybe right. we'll come back to it later. Yeah. And so, um, I'll try to hurry up. Cause this is like a, a long-winded no, um you know basically i'm playing field hockey i'm at a fancy liberal arts college i'm i'm like top of my game okay i break my thumb in a field hockey game i do get surgery um and you know it's a, it's a thumb right it's not a very major surgery it's just putting some pins in okay. your finger they and hoping you up with pills oh yeah they're like, here's a script for 30 Oxycontin. Oh, wow. Yeah. Completely necessary. For a thumb. Yeah. And my parents were like, can I curse on this on this podcast? Yes. Yes. My parents were like, fuck that. Yeah. We're not going to let our child take Oxy. Like, we know that that's not a good idea. So mm -hmm. my doctors were smart. And they were like, well, we'll prescribe her something called tramadol, which is not addictive. And, you know, I know, and probably you know, that tramadol is still a narcotic yeah, and still an opiate, sure. it's just synthetic. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I was laying in bed, taking my pills, no problems whatsoever. And then- um, Couldn't you even know, feel I, your thumbs. Didn't no. even know you had thumbs. No, <laughs> who, who needs thumbs <laughs> when you're high as fuck? Like, right, just, right. I'm laying yeah. in bed, I'm watching Scandal on Netflix. Yeah. I'm not going to class. Like it's mm -hmm. a thumb, I can go to class. Right, yeah. Um, but you know, being on those pills, like, you know, reminded me how much I love getting high. And so mm -hmm. I started, um, 
you know, using it, like smoking weed again, because I wasn't playing field hockey. Um, and now I'm smoking and I'm drinking and I don't have any responsibility to this team. So I don't have to really, you know, cover my ass anymore. Um, and then all of my flashbacks, my PTSD memories and flashbacks of my assault came back. And so that's when I kind of started doing the all day, every day thing okay. with using yeah. and drinking. And so I stopped going to class. Um, I, you know, would, would either be drunk asleep or high because I just couldn't deal with the emotional pain of what I was going through. And so ultimately how I ended up getting sober was that um, after a month of this, I was ready to hang it up. Like yeah. I, I really was, you know, figuring out what was going to be the best plan to kill myself, what was going to be the quickest and easiest way. Mm -hmm. um, and I found myself on the roof of my college counseling building, which I think is kind of ironic. Wow. And, um, you know, I got up there and I was on the roof and I was on the ledge mm -hmm. and I was there to jump. And um, I felt a shoulder touch me on the back, you know, from the back. And I turned around, there's no one on the roof with me. Wow. And I felt like, I need to get down and I need to ask for help and I need to ask someone to help me. And so my poor freshman year roommate, I like came back to our dorm room and was like, listen, I'm going to kill myself. So I don't know if you want to help me or not, but I just thought I'd say it. And, you know, she's from North Carolina. She's a really nice girl, but she was like, I don't know what to do for you. So for sure. yeah. I called yeah. my mom and she drove all the way up to Boston to come get me. And, um, yeah, that's really what it was like before wow. I got sober. Wow. Good for Good you. For you. Number one, you know, just thank you for, for being open about, you know, your, uh, your sexual abuse that, that you endured. And I'll, I'll just say, like, I think this is important to throw out there too, not, not to dismiss or, or downplay you sharing that or, or women suffering that. But I mean, I can't tell you, number one, we've had a few men on the show share the same thing and how many guys I've talked to yeah. that. So it's, I, I'm saying that to say, like when we're talking about trauma and we're talking about sexual abuse, it is all around. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I didn't really realize that there were so many men who, who had that same experience oh, until sure. I got to AA because mm -hmm. in like, you know, recovery spaces, like it's honesty all the time. And yeah. so people, people feel comfortable sharing that. And I'm so glad that other men, you know, feel like they can say that out loud in a group. Mm. The other thing I was going to say is, you know, and obviously good for you for not, you know, jumping off that, that building, but for asking for help, you know, I was just watching this video yesterday and gosh, it was so powerful. Um, I, I, I just got to bring it up. It was about this guy that jumped off the golden gate bridge and survived. Speaker. Yeah. Yeah. Heaven or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as soon, literally, as soon as he jumped, he regretted it you know, but, but he survived. But anyway, I mean, what an amazing thing. And that, yeah, I mean, that doesn't sound like, um, nothing, the, the tap you felt on the shoulder. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's pretty amazing. So you just mentioned AA. So I'm, I'm, I'm guessing at some point you get involved. Do you just go, do you go to treatment? Do you just start going to meetings? Like, how do you get into this? So even though I did ask for help, I still, prided myself in having it together. Like yeah. I thought like, I'm not that bad. Like, it's not that bad. I still have it under control. Like I was just delusional. Mm -hmm. And so once my mom came and got me, bless her heart, like came six hours from Philly to Boston to pick me up. I'm 18 years old. Like I'm still a kid, you know, like I really don't know a lot about 
how to take care of myself. So I needed my mom. And so she came and got me and took me to my, you know, therapist that I had seen in high school. And she was like, look, we're either going to send you to rehab. We're going to send you to, um, the psych ward, or we're going to send you to like an IOP, like outpatient, um, okay. you know, program. Yeah. And I'm 18. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a manipulative, you know, brat. Like I was like, I'm not doing any of that. Mm. I don't want to go, you know, stay in an inpatient facility. I'm not crazy. I'm just, you know, I just don't really want to live anymore. Like it's, it's fine. Like, let's not lock me up anywhere. Yeah, let's not overreact to right. us jumping off the building. Right. I'm crazy. Mm. So <laughs> basically um, my therapist was like, that's fine, but you have to like go to these AA meetings. Okay. And, um, you know, I, the first one that I went to typical in a church basement and, you know, I had a lot of misconceptions about addicts and alcoholics and people in recovery. And so like, you know, I got there and I'm a smart ass, you know, so I raised my hand and I was like, I'm not really supposed to be here. Um, I'm not like you people. I go to a fancy college and I play on a field hockey team, but like I tried to kill myself and that's why I'm here. And they were all like, you're in the right place. And I was like, I'm not like you people. And um, this guy came up to me after I, after the meeting and he looked like what I thought an alcoholic would look like, which is like, you know, like looks like someone who maybe lives outside, like you know, just kind of like a very rough looking guy. Yeah. And he came up to me and was like, listen, um, I was a D one baseball player and I've been living in the park for six months. And I was like, wow. All right. Thank you for that slice of humble pie. I will see you tomorrow at the Mm -hmm. same meeting. Like I realized like maybe I am like these people. And if he hadn't said that to me, I don't know if I would have gone to another meeting. Wow. Um, and yeah, so I found, I found a great, like, clubhouse basically um in glenside pennsylvania which is 15 minutes from my house and um meetings all day long but i specifically was going to the women's meetings so that i could connect with other women and feel comfortable sharing about the things that i you know was really going through and after a while like you know i really i really appreciated being able to get out of the house and go to those meetings yeah um, and so i was i was doing that for two months and then i came back to school I had been on academic probation. I had to finish up my last semester and then I was starting a new one. And I ended up finding a really great young people's meeting, other kids who are in college and getting sober in Boston. And so that really saved my life the first year for sure. Yeah, man, I I bet. And yeah, it was, it was super helpful. Number one, like you said, for just to hear that, because I had those same misconceptions and just like preconceived notions about what recovery was, you know, what 12 step programs were all about. I probably said a hundred times on the show, like in my mind, it's a cult, it's brainwashing. Yes. yes. And, but, you know, when I realized, like, I, I didn't, I don't know that I had a specific situation. I, maybe I did. I, I honestly just where my mind was at the time, like, it's all kind of a blur now, but, um, but I do remember hearing other people tell my story, Mm. you know, and and I remember when that really clicked for the first time, kind of like that guy coming up to you, you know, someone definitely, um, there were people that shared things that I was like, wow, that's okay. Maybe, maybe there's something here. Um, that's a really powerful experience, especially for people who, 
like me felt that sense of like, I don't want to live anymore. No one's mm. ever going to understand what I'm going through. Yeah. To hear someone say exactly how you're feeling is like this very like, honestly, like special and sacred kind of thing that I feel like I've experienced in AA. And to your point, like if AA is a cult, that's fine. I'm a cult member. You know what I'm saying? Like if it helps me, like, I don't care if it's a cult. That's what yeah. I say to all my sponsees. I'm like, I don't care if you think that this is like a cult because right. if it, if it works for you, then great. Welcome to the cult, you know? Yeah. Well, I, and that's, so, I mean, you kind of took the words out of my, my mouth. I was going to say, I thought it was brainwashing, but you know, what I started to think is, and like, so my, my first sponsor, you know, he would just tell me like, I don't know that I'd be bitching or complaining about anything, but like, I'd kind of be explaining like my line of thinking for making a decision or thinking about a decision. And you just say, your thinking is an error. And I started seeing that, like the way I was thinking was just so off base, you know? And, and so really I needed some, and that's, this is really what recovery is anyway. Right. And like learning about, you know, how to take care of ourselves and new behaviors. It's, it's re call it what you will. It's rewiring our brains. Right. And right. I, so I needed some of that. So let me ask you, so you, you found these young people meetings. Um, I think that's, that's so cool. Um, early on, what, what was maybe the biggest thing that you, you think you struggled with, like as you were getting sober? I think, I have a really hard time. Like people will say in, in the rooms, like you can't be too dumb for this program, but you can be too smart. And like, that yeah. is my problem because I, I think that the world revolves around me. I really do. And like, I didn't realize that until mm -hmm. I had women in, in AA point that out to me. I have a amazing sponsor who, when she was in prison, they nicknamed her perspective because she like what she was reading the big book in jail and like you know she would have like all of these things to say and so basically like i call her when i'm like freaking out because i can't control something i feel like you know i'm not in charge i feel like i'm not getting what i want and i call her and she says maggie the world does not revolve around you mm -hmm. and i need that because i i think that there's part of me that really does think that it does you know yeah 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 absolutely i, I mean and you know i i know um when some people that are that aren't in 12 step programs, like when they hear stuff like that, everyone needs something different. Right. And yeah. I, I think that's like one of the cool things about recovery, whether, you know, you're in a 12 step program or not, you can kind of figure out like who you click with, like kind of what you need. And I definitely needed and still need like people around me to be just fucking real with me and, yes. and direct with me. And because kind of like you were saying, and, and not to say I'm just the smartest guy in the world, but one of the things I'm so grateful for is that um, I've heard people just describe it as like flipping the stupid switch. Like I just stopped like questioning everything and acting like I knew everything. And that was such a big deal for me. Um, but yeah, I definitely like, especially early on, just needed people to like, really to tell me what to do. I, I didn't like, I didn't know how to function sober yeah. and, and I really needed people to like help guide me and just give me basic, you know, direction with stuff. So I, I completely understand that. I, I like that. I mean, perspective. I mean, cause that's, that's really, you know, I think that's what having a sponsor is about a lot of the times. Um, Okay. So yeah, I, I get that. Now I, I'd like to hear more about your book, which is titled pregame 
alcohol addiction and recovery through the eyes of a college student. So why did you decide to write the book? Like, how did you make the decision to get started and, and write this? So it was kind of like, it, it was a weird, the way it started is kind of crazy because basically there was a girl at my school who had written a book and she was holding like kind of like an office hour type of thing okay. at like one of our cafes and was like, hey, come talk to me about how I wrote a book. And I was like, I'd go, like, sure, I'll go. I have nothing better to do. Um, and I was like maybe four months sober. Um, and, you know, she, she, had, she had gone through this program that's led by a Georgetown professor um, where basically like he, he teaches undergrads and now graduates and others to, you know, become an expert in what you would want to do with your life career-wise and then like write about that. Oh, that's cool. And so, you know, basically I contacted this guy, his name's Professor Eric Custer at Georgetown. And I called him and I was like, I'm interested in your program, but I'm like four months sober and I don't feel like I have any like authority to write a book. However, I have a story to tell, but also I'm like totally into policy. I'm a political science major at Wellesley. And so I started when I got sober, started to research addiction, started to realize like there are so many policy flaws that are contributing to people not being able to get the services that they need when they're ready, et cetera, whatever. Um, and he was like, call me in August. And if you change your mind, we'll do it. Um, and basically when I called him in August, he said, you know, your story's not out there. There's no one really that has talked about, you know, getting sober in college from the perspective of someone who is still in college. Like people talk yeah. about getting sober at 18, 19, 20, sure. what have you, mm -hmm. but they're not in college That's when they're true. talking about it. So yeah. like the story that I had been looking for to cling on to so that I didn't feel so alone was my story. So I had to put it out there. And then I also, because I'm a nerd, had all this research about you know, criminal justice reform and drug court and like, you know, PTSD and all these different things that fall into the addiction like conversation. Um, and so what ended up happening is that, you know, I wrote partially a memoir. Um, and then also it's partially like some commentary on policy. And, um, you know, I think that a lot of people expect that it's going to be a full memoir, but like, I don't need to put my whole life into a book. I just wanted to put enough so that I had the credibility of saying like, I'm interested in this topic because it affects me on a daily basis. Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, and like you said to, because you probably would have benefited from seeing your story at some point too. Right. Exactly. And I, th I think that is like, that's, that's immediately, I mean, it's, and I like that you put it right in the title, like, Hey, I'm still in college, yeah. you know, uh, as this is going on. So, um, so that's pretty awesome. Um, I do want to ask, I, I want to come back to the policy and, and stuff. I, I want to hear from you on that in just a second. But so far, what would you say is kind of like the biggest lesson you've learned in your recovery? I think, you know, I really had to come to learn that alcohol is not my problem. Neither are drugs. Like they're not my problem. Like they cause problems in my life because I don't, I'm not good at drinking, right? Like I think that I'm good at drinking because I can drink a lot, but I'm not actually good at drinking. Right. Um, like I had to realize like the reason that I drink, it's a coping mechanism first and foremost. Like I'm not saying that I don't believe that addiction is a disease. Like I do follow that logic. However, for me, I see it mostly as a coping mechanism, a survival tool that I learned 
to deal with, you know, anxiety, depression, feeling left out, what, what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I, what I really learned, like the biggest lesson is that this is not a program, at least the program that I'm in that teaches you how to get sober. It teaches you how to get okay with yourself so that you don't have to drink to hide from yourself anymore, because that's really what I was doing. I was just burying myself in alcohol and drugs, praying that none of it would explode. Yeah. And it did anyway. So, mm-hmm. you know, that, that just didn't work for me. And I say all the time to people like abstinence worked for me. I'm a firm believer in harm reduction. And like, if things, if using drugs or drinking, like helps you cope with whatever you're going through and that works for you, like by all means, please continue using that, that coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. It stopped working for me. That's why I got sober. I needed yeah. a different solution. And yeah. I found that in a program like AA. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you were talking about math earlier uh, and gosh, you know, I never counted the, maybe I planned on taking like a, cause I ended up, you know, down the line uh, taking pain pills and stuff like that. Maybe I would plan on like taking a certain amount in a day or something, but beyond that, there was no counting or anything. Um, the equations I did do were like, how can I stay like quasi sober, <laughs> you know, like I'm not going to do pain pills, but I'll get like super drunk, smoke a little weed, yep. uh, you know, and, and it just never worked out because see, I, my thing was, it took me so long to realize this is that although I personally like, wasn't a huge fan of drinking, i would drink if it was there, you know, the, the reason it was a problem for me is because number one, I couldn't control it. Um, but it always led back to the drugs. Yeah. Like there was, I would say at the bottom of my glass is my dealer's phone number. Like one leads to the other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There were pain pills at the bottom of that glass every single time. Now I I do want to get into policy and, and you just mentioned harm reduction. My thinking my thinking has changed a, a lot on this over the years. And I'll tell you why. Number one, just like from a personal perspective. Um, so I want, okay. Initially when I got introduced to recovery or like when I kind of started down that road, um, I started, the first thing I ever did is I entered a study uh, for Suboxone before nice. it was even like on the market. And I went and like talked to a therapist and they didn't recommend, and look, I'm not blaming them. I probably wouldn't have gone. They didn't recommend like 12 steps or any like other recovery stuff or anything like that. And, you know, and basically I just took the Suboxone long enough to like, you know, uh, get paid for the study and then like, you know, move on. And so I did that a couple other times, like other outpatients, you know, I would go, I would get the Suboxone. Now, I know there's people like that might be listening to this that have struggled with like just the box. And like, thankfully, I never liked it. Like it wasn't something that I wanted to do to abuse or anything. I thought it had a lot of weird side effects. But, um, you know, when I first got like a- after having a little while sober, like and people started talking about harm reduction more, like initially I was like, well, how are you sober if you're, you know, doing xyz and like i totally forgot that like hey dude like by the way you were you know that's kind of how you got into recovery like you know i i mean 
it's a tough thing, right? Like, I, I really want to hear your take on this. Like, it's I go back and forth because it's like, you know, it's still a mind-altering substance. But, like, for me, I think this is the way it's supposed to work, right? It's the way it worked for me. Like, hey, this is going to keep you alive yeah. and around long enough that hopefully, like, a seed of recovery gets planted. And then hopefully one day you can get off of it. But then, of, unfortunately, there's people that are just, like, on this shit forever, yeah. right? So, Talk to me about this a little bit, like just kind of like your view on on harm reduction. Yeah, I could talk about this for like an hour or two, um, but you, you got it. two minutes. I'll, no, I'll keep I'm it just to two. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I um. So I I grew up in Philadelphia, and yeah. we have one of the um, largest open air markets for narcotics. Yeah, so yeah. Um, Philadelphia is just completely overrun with overdoses, and so when I got sober. I wanted to get involved in the community and I wanted to learn more about um, the opiate crisis because I, while I don't call myself an opiate addict, um, I did have experience with that and how easy it is for someone to get their hands on prescribed narcotics. And mm -hmm. so I did a lot of research and I was learning and I ended up, you know, meeting a lot of people through recovery, but also joining some like nonprofits and having internships and learning um, about harm reduction. Specifically last summer, I was running a naloxone distribution. Naloxone, for anyone who doesn't know is listening, it's also known as Narcan. It's an overdose reversal medication. Um, and I was running this distribution program across the state of Pennsylvania, and we ended up sending like 1,700 doses of Narcan wow. across the state. So I learned a lot from the people that I that I worked with at that time. And, sure. and like my, I will tell you that I think that most people in recovery, like especially those who weren't necessarily um, like taking advantage of those harm reduction services. Like for me, like I have never been to a harm reduction place other than to volunteer because I was not an IV drug user. So I didn't need to go to like a syringe service program. Um, but I wanted to learn more. And, you know, with the Suboxone, like there are a lot of people who are like old timer, like 12 step people who are like abstinence is the only way. Right. And like what I will remind everyone who's listening, who maybe is still kind of on the fence about Suboxone and other um, harm reduction strategies such as Narcan and clean needles. Um, you know, there are plenty of places in this country who still teach that abstinence is the best way to practice sex, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, what I would remind everyone that we interact with harm reduction every day. Your seatbelt is to reduce harm. You're wearing a condom is to reduce you know, harm in having pregnancy or STDs, whatnot, like a helmet when you're on your bike. This is, these are all forms of harm reduction. And I'd also, you know, with the Suboxone and Vivitrol and all those different methadone, um, all the different medicated assisted treatments, um, you know, I'm on antidepressants, right? And I changed my antidepressant recently and they didn't just tell me you got to quit cold turkey, right? Like I right. had a tolerance to those things. And so right. I had to slowly taper off of it. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how I think of Suboxone in terms of people who are addicted to opiates. Like you kind of have to be tapered down. You can't just go cold turkey. Like you might actually die from withdrawal yeah. if they don't do it gradually, especially if you've been using for a long time and in large quantities. And mm -hmm. so I have plenty of friends who are on Suboxone. They feel really good about it. Um, be, most of them because they have a doctor that's very attentive and checks in with them regularly. I feel that when people are, you know, using Suboxone and don't necessarily have a lot of um, supports, it can be hard. I mean, some people can do it from what I've heard, but 
um, it's nice to have that support and someone to check in with. And some people stay on it for years. And I think that that's fine. You know, like as long as you're able to function and like have the life that you want to have, like, that's fine. Yeah. And like I said before, like, I, I don't think that abstinence is the only way to recovery. I have plenty of friends who are like, I don't do heroin anymore, but like I'll have a glass of wine at dinner. And I'm like, good for you. If you can do that, that's great. I can't, but you know, love that for you and your journey. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, harm reduction is like this huge field of, of different strategies and conversations and theories. And like, I think that people need to ease into the idea that like doing drugs is not a bad thing. Just the general population needs to understand that just because someone, have you seen, there's a, there's a new book by this doctor. Mm-hmm. He's like a professor and he came out and said that he uses heroin regularly. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Like he microdoses with heroin or something. Yeah. And I was like, that is so cool that he can like say that out loud because a lot of people, you know, are like, all drugs are bad and everyone who uses drugs is an addict. And it's like, mm-hmm. that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. It's like for anyone listening that hasn't seen this, it's like this clean cut, like younger college professor. And he's like, yeah, just casually on the weekends. Like I'll just do yeah. a little heroin. Right. <laughs> Sounds fun. I mean, I know plenty of housewives in my yeah. suburban neighborhood that will yeah. pop a bucket in and have a glass of wine and call yeah. that a night, you know, yeah. like yeah. it's very common. It's just, we've kind of deemed like certain drugs to be, um, worse than others. And obviously that's tied to the carceral system and the war on drugs and all that. And I just think that as someone who does practice abstinence, like I feel that it's kind of my obligation when I'm talking to other people who maybe are not as open to harm reduction to say like, look, abstinence works for me. It's not going to work for everyone. And we all need to be respectful of everyone's paths to recovery, whatever that looks like for them. Yeah. 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 And it's just, it's an interesting deal, right? I mean, like number one, I think not to get into this too much, but you know, what I do know is this, like you, you mentioned like the doctors, you know, and like with Suboxone specifically, like the, the way it is supposed to be prescribed. And like, this is just what I know because like, I was literally in the study before the shit was even like on the market. Right. It's not supposed to be taken for years. Now the, the bottom line is, and like, I'm very grateful that like the way that it was prescribed to me, it was like, it was over like a couple week period and like it was done. Yeah. Now the fact is, is it, you know what, like, and, and this is kind of what I like was really judgmental about, honestly, initially, I think, you know, where I'm at now, it's like, you know, like it says on the back of like the AA chips to thine own self be true. You know, if like, if someone is, you know, okay with that themselves, like they're really okay with that. And like, it's keeping them like from, you know, ODing or, or doing something that is going to harm themselves or other, then that's, I think that's what we're talking about, right? Like you mentioned seatbelts, bike helmets, like these were all things that people were like, fuck, what we're doing right now is not working. Like seatbelts, like seatbelts aren't like that old, like they haven't been around that long. And it's like how, what we've been doing driving around without seatbelts isn't working. And it's like, you know, I, I think the thing that I can't argue with is like, what we have been doing in terms of trying to get people help from addiction has not been been working for the most part right and so it's like maybe it's not a perfect thing in in my eyes or in someone else's i mean it's not the perfect thing right now because we have a lot of people you know still dying out there unfortunately but I, i think the point is is that um we've got to try something different right and Um, I think like, again, I have to go back to myself, like it kept me around long enough 
right. um, to finally say, you know, I'm, I think I'm okay without, you know, without anything. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that I really want to hit home on the fact that like harm reduction is not a foreign concept to us. I think mm -hmm. that just because it's in the context of people who use drugs, we feel uncomfortable because it's kind of a taboo topic. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, what I've learned, especially from working and living in Philadelphia is like people who are using drugs are deathly afraid of withdrawing. That yeah. is why people continue. It, it, I mean, A, it can kill you to withdraw, mm -hmm. but also like, you know, I've had the shakes coming down off of something like I'm sure it's a hundred times worse when you're, you know, using daily to a certain extent. Um, but like, you know, I'm thinking about the campaign that I was working on this summer, like Pennsylvania is one of the only states that does not have um, a statute that legalizes syringe service programs statewide. We have two, one in Pittsburgh and one in Philly. And um, people, there are people, especially in the public who are not really connected to, you know, the recovery community at all, who really um, have hurtful and hateful things to say about addicts, specifically, why are we giving them the tools that they need to, you know, why are we giving them clean needles? Mm -hmm. If we're just, you know, making them use more, we're making, keeping them addicted. Why do we have to Narcan these people if they OD, like that's their fault, like we shouldn't bring them back to life. And it's like, right. these are human beings who have the autonomy of their bodies to do whatever they would like for whatever reason they would like. Yeah. And I think that there's a really important thing. There's a really important part of harm reduction that is meeting someone where they're at, you know, mm -hmm. like they might not want to go into treatment. You know, the city of Philadelphia is pissed because they send social workers down to Kensington all the time. And they're like, nobody takes us up on our offer to send them to treatment. And I'm like, of course they're not. First of all, they're sending cops down there. Second yeah. of all, and nobody fucking likes cops. Mm -hmm. And second of all, like, you know, people don't want to go to treatment. They want to keep using drugs because they like using drugs. You know, like, yeah. it, I think that people need to realize, like, not all addicts are waiting for you to save them. Like, people, we just have to make everything ready and accessible for when people do want to enter treatment. And some might never, but if they do, it just has to be available. And we can't require people to be sober to live in public housing. We cannot, you know, require people to not be using drugs, even smoking weed, if we're going to drug test them for a job, right. you know, like these are all things that like are just continually criminalizing people who use drugs, which is rooted in racism and, you know, complete and utter disrespect for other human beings, you know? Yeah. 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 And, and so you're talking about like needle exchanges, right? Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm here in Houston, Texas, and, you know, that's like a pretty rare thing in these parts, for sure. Um, <clears throat> but the, the idea is, is that these people can come and exchange their needles. And I think, you know, I mean, I hate to even say it like this, but like, because you're right, like these, these are human beings, um, you know, and yeah, whether they're ready to stop or not, um, it's an economic issue too, because, you know, when we've got these people that are getting sick and, you know, going into the hospitals and taking up spaces for other people that should be in there when they just could have gotten, you know, I don't know how much a syringe costs, but it can't be that much compared to what a hospital stay costs. 
Well, it's crazy because when I was working on this campaign, we had two different slide decks. One was for the Democrats, which was all about appealing to their humanity of like these people, you know, need to have services available to them, just like you would for any other medical condition. Mm -hmm. And then for the Republicans, it's like, look how much money we are saving with a needle exchange. Philadelphia yeah. saved like $20 million or something I, yeah. by exchanging needles because it cuts down on treatment for um, you know, STIs and other diseases that are spread through, you know, dirty needles being mm -hmm. shared. Mm -hmm. It cuts down on, you know, the amount of people, like you said, in the hospital. So yeah, it is an economic issue, but I think that you have to, you have to add that humanity back in sure. because, you know, most people don't even like look at people on the street who are using because yeah. they, they just, they don't see them as other human beings. Mm -hmm. So we're talking a lot about policy here. Yeah, I'm a nerd. Um, no, I mean, but look, it, it's it's important, right? And I mean, I, I think, you know, really, this should be uh, should be a bigger part of the conversation. So, I mean, if you could change like one thing, what would that be? Like, if you were in charge, what's what's changing tomorrow? Like, what is the one thing that you're? Is it like a de de uh, decriminalization route? Is it legalization? Is it like, what, what are we doing here? I mean, it's hard to pick one, but I'm definitely proponent of legalizing over decriminalizing. Um, you know, that that has worked in Portugal. Their overdose rates went down significantly when they legalized all drugs, including like heroin, cocaine, crack, all that. Um, like we can't just stop at marijuana. Like I know that like, you know, it's probably not gonna happen. Like very quickly because we just got weed legalized so mm. like i don't know but um you know the the thing that really comes to mind like yes there are things that i want to do in terms of like the ways in which we um criminalize people who use drugs definitely that's important but i yeah. feel like if we're talking about like generally what i would do what i would want to change for people who are seeking recovery and treatment is we need universal health care the number one reason why people can't get into treatment when they're ready is because their insurance won't get there, won't, won't allow them to stay longer than like, you know, 28 days, whatever it is. Maybe a lot of people need more than that, you know? And the other thing is like, um, we don't have enough treatment centers. There's always like, you have to call six places to find mm -hmm. one open bed. Um, and I've sat on the phone with people doing this with them and it is so frustrating to call each and every treatment center in your area and ask like do you have a bed and they're like no sorry and like there's months long waits and that can't happen because in that time between someone actually wanting to go to treatment and actually getting there they could go right back od and die For so sure. you know it's expanding treatment it's expanding the healthcare you know system in this country so that people can go and get the treatment that they need when they're ready and you know i i really would like to see um some of those war on drugs era laws um, changed. Uh, mandatory minimums infuriate me. You should not have to go to jail for 15 years just because you have a sugar packet worth of Coke on you. Like that just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of things, but I think definitely healthcare is gonna be the number one thing for, for addicts who want treatment because it's just, it's so impossible right now to get somewhere quick, you know? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, I, I do want to ask if you and I think you've given us an idea, but if you could just tell us a little bit about 
what your recovery looks like today. Yeah. Um, so I just celebrated three years on December 5th of 20. That's awesome. Yeah. So it's, it's really kind of crazy because I think the first year I was like, thank God I'm still sober. The second year I had a great time. I went out dancing at a club for my sober birthday or whatever. And then this year I was in quarantine and I, you know, I've been reflecting back and like my recovery, I love zoom. I love that we've been able to have like meetings on zoom. I have a really great home group. I try to go every night at six. I'm really involved in my home group. I chair the meeting um, on Sundays right now, which is a great slot. Um, and, you know, I, I have an amazing sponsor. Like I said, I've sponsored at least five other women at this point in my recovery, which has been some of the greatest gifts of my life. Um, one of them was 15 years old, um, wow. which was really amazing um, to be a part of their journey for as long as I was. Um, so, you know, I am involved in my program for sure um, in terms of going to meetings and staying connected with other people in 12 steps. But, you know, outside of that, like I am in therapy. I am a heavily medicated lady. Um, you know, I, I am definitely a proponent of, um, you know, seeing a psychiatrist if you do need that. Um, I've been on antidepressants since I was 16 and, and they really, um, they, they work for me. They don't work for everyone. I've had the same therapist since I was 16. Her name is Barbara and I love her with my whole heart. And, um, you know, other than that, like really, I tried to get back into exercise. I had a back injury my last season of field hockey and I was like, I'm not trying to mess this up again. So I didn't work out for a year and I just started again a couple of weeks ago. And now I'm like so tired every day, <laughs> but like, you know, just like little things taking care of myself. Like that's important in addition to the program and therapy, like, you know, just being nice to myself and like surrounding myself with people that make me feel good. That's, that's really what my recovery is, is building a life that I feel comfortable in because for so long, I didn't feel comfortable in my life and my own skin. And that's why I drank. So, mm. you know, I think it's, it's as important to have a program for me as it is to have people outside of that program supporting me as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Got to have that, that support and that, that team, your, your recovery squad. Yeah. Yeah. So before we wrap up, I do want to ask if there's maybe one piece of advice that you'd like to share with the sober nation, whether it's, uh, you know, someone that's trying to get sober, uh, someone that's been sober for a little while, maybe struggling. Yeah. Um, there have been a couple of times in my recovery where I was just kind of like, fuck this, you know, like, what's the point? Like I, I got sober to be happy, you know? And like, life still shows up and it still sucks sometimes. And like, you know, I say all the time, life is just one big dumpster fire and we all just got to find like whatever, like we can salvage out of the fire. And, you know, really, <laughs> I think being able to laugh at yourself and being able to say like, I mean, I didn't drink today and I didn't kill myself. So it's a good day. You know, like it's, it's, that's really how simple it had to be for me. And so if I had to give any advice, it would be like, life doesn't get easier just because you got sober, but you learn how to deal with life in a way that is productive when you get sober. Because when I was drunk, I couldn't deal with anything. And now that I am sober, I'm learning how to react to situations that cause me extreme stress. Um, I'm learning how to better take care of myself and my mental illness. Um, and, you know, I, I think 
at the end of the day, my sponsor always tells me like, this is a self-caring program. It's a self-learning program. And I, I came to AA to save my own ass. I didn't come to make friends. All the friends that I've made are just bonuses out of the whole experience. Um, but first and foremost, I was there because I didn't know what to do with myself. And what I've learned is that underneath all the alcohol, there's a really, really scared little girl that's in me. And I need to coax her out and tell her that it's okay, that we are safe now. And, um, you know, I do that in therapy and I do it in my program. And so being able to get to know yourself without the alcohol, that's the greatest gift that I've gotten. And I hope that other people can find that as well, mm. but it doesn't come quickly and it, and it doesn't come easily, you know? So yeah. patience, patience is, is key in sobriety. And I, I've said this before and I'll say it again, getting sober is doing a lot of shit that you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And at some point you end up starting to like it, you know? So yeah. Yeah. just keep pushing if you're in a tough spot, keep pushing, stay sober, reach out to someone. Well said, well said, awesome advice. So you can connect with Maggie on Instagram at Maggie X King, and you can find her book pregame on Amazon. Thanks again for coming on the show, Maggie. Thank you, Jonathan. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the info from today's episode. Sober Nation FM is brought to you by Sobriety Engine. Sobriety Engine is a free online community of men and women supporting each other in their recovery. Visit sobrietyengine.com to join today. This show is also brought to you by Recover Health. If you're ready to get fit and start living a healthier lifestyle while supporting your sobriety, you can learn more about having me as your own personal fitness and nutrition coach at RC vrhealth.com and again whether you're listening to the show on spotify apple Podcasts, or watching on youtube please share this with your friends follow subscribe and leave us a review nation thanks for tuning in and i'll see you next time